Good morning again. I would invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. We'll be looking at one verse, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to worship together. Lord, we pray. We thank you for the privilege of being able to open this word and glean from it, learn from it. I pray that you would, you would bless our hearts with this word, comfort us today. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. May we apply what we learn today to our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been covering our hearts with the book of Isaiah the past few um, Sundays. One of the most, it is one of the most prominent books of the Old Testament. It's a large book, 66 chapters. A very prominent book. And Isaiah is warning Judah of the pending judgment of God. That God's anger is just building up day after day. And uh, is, Judah seems to be blind to this fact, to this reality. They think everything is, is good. And God keeps warning them through the prophet Isaiah that, uh, that he, they can expect being sent off into exile. It's a promise. You're going to be, you're going, to be going off into exile. Um, and again, they seem to be blinded by this, probably by their own prosperity. Outwardly, they are successful, but inwardly, uh, they were full of pride and hypocrisy. Uh, so it's a book of judgment and warning from God, but it's also a book of comfort. Throughout the whole uh, book, we see uh, the, the, the comfort of one main thought. Now, we, we know that these Old Testament saints, they would take comfort from the Word of God. That, that was their source of comfort, was this Word. They would narrow it down to the Word of God. They would take comfort from that. But within the Word of God, there was one major idea that they would always get comfort from, and that was that someday Christ would send a Messiah. That was the main source of comfort to these Old Testament saints. It's not always going to be like this. God will send a Savior. He'll send Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And it's a reoccurring theme throughout the, the book of Isaiah. But it's also uh, down through the ages, uh, it would be a reoccurring theme throughout the, the Old Testament books. And so what these Old Testament prophets or Old Testament saints would have to do is pull together all of these little glimpses down through the ages of the Messiah and pull them together into a profile of what this Messiah is going to be like. It would just be a glimpse here and a glimpse there. And uh, we have the privilege of seeing the whole picture. But they would see it. So Daniel. Daniel was a prophet and he would probably search out the whole of Scripture and say, see what God has said about this prophet to, or this uh, Messiah to come. And, and we see that even in uh, his exile, Daniel was uh, one of those who were carted off by Babylon. And we, 
we suspect that these magi that we are studying about in this time of year, the magi that came to visit the Messiah, was probably descendants or disciples of, uh, of Daniel. And because he studied the word of God and pulled together, this is what the Messiah was to be like. And that's the way we are to do it. It would take comfort from the word of God. The main source of that comfort being the Messiah. And, and like I said, we have the we have the full view today. It's a wonderful thing to have to be a New Testament saint and to have the privilege of knowing what God promised, seeing that promise be fulfilled in Christ and then looking forward to the return of Christ. That's that's our perspective today. It's a wonderful thing. And we celebrate that today. We celebrate the the uh, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of a redeemer, a savior. And I, I want us to notice that within this within this um, uh, time frame in celebrating the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Christ, I notice the character of God becomes more prominent. It just kind of shines through that when God, when the Messiah is born, we just see that the character of God coming through. And it's in ways that you might not expect. In fact, it might be even a paradox to us. It might seem to be a contradiction, uh, something that we may not expect. I mean, you have the, the God of the universe, the, the most powerful person, having all authority with all the privileges, being worshipped by everybody, everyone and should be worshipped by everyone. And his will is the predominant will for uh, the whole of his creation. But what we see here, especially in this text and what we'll look at today, is his humility. Now think about it. The God of the universe, humble. We see his condescension. In coming down to be man. We see his sacrifice. We see him uh, emptying himself of glorious things and submission and obedience. It, it's amazing we, where we should expect dominance and power and authority. We see we see humility and submission. Um, and that's a glorious thing. That is something that we see in God's character that's on display in Scripture. And we see it, we see it really all over, even in His creation. And it's expected, that same characteristic is expected in His children. Humility. Sacrifice. Submission. Obedience. An emptying of self. Now, to understand this passage, to understand this, uh, this one little verse, I want to set the stage. We need to, to get some context here. First of all, we need to see the, the social and the political setting, the context of, of that. And this is a, a time of transition in, uh, uh, in Judah, in uh, Isaiah's life here. This is the year... That King Uzziah died. That was the same year that uh, uh, that Isaiah became a, a prophet, a servant of the Lord. King Uzziah was uh, the king for 52 years. He served the people well. Uh, they thrived under his leadership. He ruled Ju- Judah 
uh, well, and they succeeded financially, commercially. They were able to sell and bring money into uh, Israel. Militarily, they were strong. He was a good king, at least outwardly, in, in, the, in the public eye. Now, he has passed away. The, the kingdom is, is stable, but we have a, a new king. So it's a transition time. And his, his son is now king, um, Ahaz. This is King Uzziah's son. And the question is, is what kind of ruler is he going to be? Is he going to trust the Lord or is he not going to trust the Lord? And so that's that's the that's the question. And like I said, this is the same year that uh, Isaiah becomes a, a prophet. And we know that in chapter six, he lays the, all of this out. And it was a situation where the Lord uh, gives him this vision and paints this picture that somebody needs to go and tell these people of their own sinfulness. Isaiah raises his hand and says, uh, here am I, send me, Lord. A passage you may know well. And so he is pulled into the ministry. And the Lord sends him to to Judah. In fact, to serve in the capital city, Jerusalem. And he was part of that social uh, network uh, that was probably the upper echelons of that society. In fact, he had access to the king. And some people think that uh, he was probably related to the king uh, in some way because he had easy access to the king. Now, we need to, to note the national, kind of the national climate that is important. What's happening is Assyria, Assyria, is becoming an, an up-and-coming uh, nation. They, they're becoming a threat. They're just becoming larger and larger. Little nations, Assyria and, uh, and Ephraim, they have allied together. And uh, they want Judah to join them, to make a pact so that they could... Fight against Assyria. And, but Ahaz has a good relationship with the king of Assyria because of his longstanding relationship with his father and the father's relationship with the, the king. But that's the problem. And I think we see a, a consistent pattern here. Because the problem is that, is that he, they, Israel and Ahaz, is is not trusting the Lord. They're they're trusting their own... He's trusting his own political maneuvering. He's trusting in this relationship that he has with this powerful uh, country, Assyria. In fact, he's giving them gold from the temple um, and uh, for security and, and safety. But the reality is, is he is not trusting the Lord. In fact, what happens... Ultimately, they become impoverished because they they give away all of their their wealth. And he becomes this puppet king, draining the kingdom of all of its resources and essentially becomes a slave of Assyria anyway. Because he did not trust the Lord. So he goes from riches to rags. Because he does not trust the Lord. And that's kind of reflects their spiritual decline as well. I want you to see this. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4, Isaiah sums it up, the spiritual climate of the day. Alas, sinful nation, 
And that kind of tells you something. That people weighed down with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. So they knew the Lord, but they've abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And they have turned away from Him. That's, that's spiritual decline. And that's what's happening. Now they're still doing all of the, the rituals, all of the religious activities. In fact, you see in verse, chapter, uh, verses 10 down to verse 17, they're, they're still doing their sacrifices, offering their sacrifices. They're still adhering to the festivals They're still praying to the Lord, singing to the Lord. And and God tells them in this little passage, stop doing it. I don't want to receive. I will not receive your sacrifices. I don't want to hear your prayers. I will not listen to you anymore. Because their hearts were far from the Lord. And so there was a smugness. They were doing religious things. They were moral people, upright people, religious people. They were secure and safe, financially stable But they were not trusting the Lord. They were trusting their own religion, religiosity, tradition. And their hearts were were far from the Lord. And they were more vulnerable than they thought they were. They were actually blind to their own circumstances, thinking they are good. Having no faith in God, the, the faith that they would have would be shallow faith. And it was all talk. What they would they would say one thing, but but do another. So this is just superficial religion. This is this is a hypocrisy. This is a phoniness, a quasi religion or quasi religious state. And King Ahaz reflected that kind of attitude. Now that's a that's a danger, folks. I think it's a danger in our day as as well. Uh, the problem is just pretending, pretense, playing church. The problem is refusing to trust God when it seems like you're trusting God. And in that, there's a, an arrogance. Um, and that's uncharacteristic of God's people. We trust God. We live a, a life of faith. Because it is by faith that we please God. And if we don't have that faith, then we don't please God. If we're not depending, living by faith in God, we cannot please God. That's just the characteristics of of God's people. So God is is warning them through this uh, uh, prophet Isaiah. And we get a glimpse in, in his warning. We get a glimpse of his character. His humility and sacrifice and love. And there, in his attitude, stands in stark contrast to their pride and arrogance that we see in them. And so the principle is, is we must be careful that we are in our service of the Lord, that we don't, that we don't become puffed up. But we look, continuously look at the grace of God. Now, what's the significance then of this virgin birth that we read about? Let me read the the verse again. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and 
bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, the I want to look at the broader context. Now that we've seen the broader context, I want to narrow it down to the context of, of verse of chapter seven here, in the context of this particular verse, so that we can understand it. Now, this is a passage. This is a verse that you know well that you've heard before, but but you may not have considered the context of this of this verse, and it's it's pretty interesting. And to pull it out, I want us to look at ask four questions. Four questions. First of all, what is the sign? What is the sign? And who is this sign for? Look at, uh, look at chapter 7, the, the little bit broader context of this chapter. What we see then is one of the first acts that Isaiah had to do as a new prophet uh, in Israel was to, to go visit the king. And that's what he was to do. Go visit the king. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said to him, Go out now to meet Ahaz. And he says, take your son with him. Uh, there's a, a point to that. In verse 4, he says, take care and be calm. He says, I want you to tell the king to not fear. Not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be faint-hearted, he says in verse 4. Now, what was happening is, there was rumors that they were going to be attacked by Ephraim. And the king would react and respond in such a way that would not glorify God. And God is saying, trust me, Isaiah, you go tell the king to to trust me, trust me, not what you see, not your political maneuvering, not understanding, not with your own understanding, but you trust me, you trust me. And then in verse 11 we skip down, well, let me read verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So Isaiah does what the Lord commanded. Uh, and he speaks to the king. And he says, he says, trust me. And then he says this. This is something that's really interesting. God himself says, ask for a sign for yourself. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. You, you trust me, and, and if you can't trust me, if you feel like you, you can't trust me, I'll give you a sign. I'll prove that I'm at work. I'll prove, the one, uh, I'll prove that I'm the one in this. I'll prove that I'm doing this. You can ask for a sign. It's okay. Now that, that would be a wonderful thing. Man, I would say, hey, let me see this, and let me see something glorious, and let me see that. Well, the response of the king is very interesting. He says, I will, verse 12, I will not ask for a sign, nor will, I, nor will I test the Lord. Now you have to understand that in its context here is that he's, he's providing this attitude that, that really is a, a false humility. Oh, I would never test the Lord. Oh, I, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I trust God. I trust God. And the reality is he's not. And the Lord gets angry with him. Then the Lord said, listen now, O house of David. So he broadens it out, not just to the king, but to the whole nation here. Listen to the house of David. Is it, not a, is it too light of a thing that you would try the patience of man, that you will try the patience of God as well? The Lord is pretty angry. And then we see this verse. Therefore, the Lord said, I will give you a sign. You're not asking for you. You pretend you don't need a sign. I'll give you a sign. And then he launches into uh, a, a, a little 
glimpse of the Messiah to come. I'll give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, let's think about this. This is a sign. What, what is a sign? A sign is something when we look at Scripture that it points to evidence that God is working. It, it shows. Look at this. God is, God is at work here. And it's a, it's a miraculous thing. Now, we don't maybe look at it as miraculous. But just think about this. A virgin shall be with child. A virgin shall conceive. A young woman who has never known a man, never come in contact with a man physically, sexually, she is now pregnant. Now, that's that's a miracle. How does that happen? It, It can't happen in this physical world. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And in fact, at the end of the verse, he says she will call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Now, we know that phrase. We use that. So this is shocking. This is a sign. This is an attention-getting thing. This is like a neon sign. Look at me. Look at this. To get, get attention. There's a new Taco Bell going up in, in Bradley. And I can't wait till they get the sign up, you know? Look at this. Taco Bell. Appalachian Bible College. Got a new sign. It's exciting. I go past a sign at Woodrow Wilson every every day, and it flashes on lights. It's attention getting. Gives you the temperature. Gives you the time. Gives you little scrolls, little uh, messages. It's a wonderful thing. It gets your attention. And a virgin birth gives you gets your attention all through the ages. It should get get our attention. And it should say, point to one fact, and that is, God is at work here. God is at work. And folks, that assures our heart. This is is God at work. Now, some people would would just uh, just kind of wave it away and say, oh, you know, she got pregnant out of wedlock. That's just what a lot of women do. And they just kind of of blow it off. So that's the, the way the unbeliever would see it. But we see it as a, a piece of the puzzle of pulling together a profile of the Messiah. God is at work here. Uh, and, they, and they just dismiss it. Do we, know, do we know the word enough to pick up on these signs? Do we know the word of God enough to, to see, to be able to see when God is at work? What God is doing? Now, we were talking about in Sunday school. We have a, a whole lot of people that are just being led away by these false prophets in, in uh, the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement. They're just being led a- a- away because they don't know the word of God enough to know the right sign, to know that, that God is actually working in this. So it's a sign. It's a sign. A sign from God, and it's a crucial sign. And it says, God is at work, get, uh, it's getting our attention. Now, the, question number two, did God really come to earth? Now, that's kind of a, 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 a silly question for, to ask for, uh, from believers. Because the whole Bible points to the very fact that, that Christ was the Messiah. 
the whole claim of Scripture, the whole claim of the Bible is it points to one person, and that is that's Christ. If you go back to Genesis chapter three, Genesis chapter three, the first book of the Bible, verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, he should have said Adam or, or, or the, 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 the man, but he said the woman in between your seed and her seed. Well, something's interesting is women don't have seeds. They just have the eggs. And that's pointing again to God at work, a special, a special act from God, a special act from God with no man being involved. And it's a promise of a, a savior to come. We see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that he is an offspring of God. No man involved. I'll read you a couple of other passages. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, uh, we see, verse 17 says, And behold, this is uh, when Christ comes out of the water uh, after he is baptized. He says, that Behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is God's son. The whole of scripture is pointing toward that. Romans chapter, Romans chapter one. I have to read. I love Paul's perspective here. Romans chapter one and verse one. Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle, apart, uh, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, that's God, promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son. He's pointing out that the whole of, the, of Scripture was pointing to this one fact, and that is this Messiah, and it was God's son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who, is, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection. You see the resurrection? You recognize this is God. This is God. This is someone with power. He's the Son of God, not mere man. That, that's the whole point of Scripture, isn't it? You look at the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and you see a description of Christ. And you see Him in all of His glory. So you have Genesis to Revelation, points to one person, and that is the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer to come. And that's Christ. That's Christ. It's like, and some people miss it. It's amazing. It's like going to see the sunrise or the sunset and not looking at the sun. Just missing the whole point. Or going to the beach and, and not looking at the ocean. It's the point. Or, or going up to, to Grandview or going on a high mountain and not looking at the beautiful view. The, the whole point of Scripture points us to Christ. Man's need is for Christ, a Savior. We're promised Christ. We see the works of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the results of all of that Christ has done. Everything points to Christ. That's the central theme of Scripture. There's two men on their way to Emmaus and Christ stopped them and he was talking with them. And they were talking about the Messiah, the Christ. And it says he sat down and he explained to them 
essentially that the whole of Scripture points to Christ, to Christ. So take comfort, folks. We have not gotten it wrong. We have not gotten it wrong. We can be we can be encouraged. We can comfort our own hearts. We've got it right. The whole of Scripture, they have you have four thousand years of history here. The whole of Scripture points to one person, and that is that is Christ. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ, then you've got the point. That's the point. Emmanuel, God with us. Number three, third question. How did God become man? It's just a natural question. How did that happen? What did it take for God to become man? Now, I want you to point, I want to point out three words for you. We'll look at some passages of Scripture here. The first word is the kenosis. The kenosis. And it's a theological term, but it's a word that you need to get to uh, become familiar with. Um, kenosis is the idea is an emptying, himself, an emptying of oneself. Like we'd empty the trash can or something like that. And we see this in Philippians chapter 2 and verses, verse 5. We see that that's exactly what Christ did in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Having, have this attitude in yourself which is also in Christ. So this is a command to the church to have the same attitude that Christ had. What kind of attitude is that? Who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard the equality of God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hang on to his godness. So what did he do? Verse 7. But emptied himself. Emptied himself. Taking on the form of a bond servant. Folks, that's humility. That's sacrifice. So the kenosis here is an emptying of oneself. It's a voluntary uh, surrendering of the independent use of his divine attributes. I will not, I will, I will not do these godlike, miraculous things uh, on earth unless I see the Father doing. And what did Christ say? I only came to do the will of my Father. The whole point of that is to show dependence, to show faith, to be an example for us. And he set aside the use of those gifts. Only if the Father told him, yes, do this or do that. He was dependent upon his Father. It says you have kenosis. The, the next word I want you to see. Now that's what's going on in heaven, this kenosis. He was the emptying himself. The next word is what's going on on earth. And that's conception. And go with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse, 20, verse 18. Conception. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says this. And I, I, we'll look at this whole passage, the passage that Dave read for us earlier. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed. So they were just engaged, not married, hadn't come together. That's the point. Before they came together. Again, that's the point. Virgin. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So what's going on? Christ emptied himself, submitted himself to the uh, work of the Holy Spirit. And he was uh, implanted into the womb of Mary, into the un, uh, into the 
the egg, if you will, of, of Mary. And no human donor. Again, that's the point. Jesus, her, and uh, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. That becomes important because he's the overseer of this thing. And not wanting to disgrace her because she was pregnant out of wedlock. And he knew he didn't do it. So he was going to divorce her. But when he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus for his saveth people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now who do you think he's going to quote? Isaiah. And he quotes it. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And she shall bear son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which is translated God with us. And then it goes on to, to explain how Joseph was obedient. He says, Joseph spoke, uh, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him to do. And he kept, he took Mary to be his wife, but kept her a virgin until uh, she gave birth to the son. So jo- Joseph was, was overseeing this. He was protecting this. This conception by the Holy Spirit to make sure, being a righteous man, to make sure that, that no other man interfered with this. That this was an act of God alone. So you have Christ emptying himself. You have Mary having no sexual relations with any other man. The Holy Spirit coming on her. She then is impregnated. And you have Joseph overseeing this. And let me give you one other word. One more word, and that's the hypostatic union. I'm giving you these theological words because you need to know these. This is, this is both the divine nature and the human nature coming together in one person, and that is Jesus Christ. We see the, the attributes of divine nature. We see the attributes of, of humanity. And we can go through Scripture and look at all of those, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's necessary. You have a hypostatic union. You have 100% God, 100% man. Now, what I want you to see here is sacrifice, folks. It's sacrifice. And humility and love and, and selflessness. That Christ gave up everything. And He came to, to be a, a servant. You see, you see sacrifice. Now, what is sacrifice? That's the, the voluntary, voluntary giving up, if you will, of some benefit to you. A voluntary giving up of some benefit to you. Something that you really want. And you, you can see it. You can see it among your children. You, you know, that they, they might reluctantly give you their candy. But sometimes that'll happen. And it'll be a precious thing. Mommy, you can have this. That would be a precious thing. It's voluntary, voluntarily giving up. That's what Christ did. Sometimes I have to give up my nap on Sunday afternoons. I don't want to. It's something I want to hang on to. But sometimes I, I, I give it up. Folks, there's some things that we, we just have to sacrifice. Not, not play religion, but, but actually sacrifice. 
We have to give up what we want in order to, to do what pleases God because it's an act of faith. And it's a, an example of, of Christ, what Christ has done in sacrificing for us and, and humility. And it's exactly the character of God. And it's hard for us to imagine that God, the most powerful being in the universe, is sacrificing. But that's what He did. He gave up. He gave up His Son. Christ gave up His glory. He sacrificed. You know, we may have to sacrifice our own comfort and go and talk to people. We have to make, we may have to sacrifice our time and teach a class or even take a class. We may sacrifice sleeping in. We have to get up early. We may, we may sacrifice our life. But isn't that what the Christian life is all about? It's giving up our life. Folks, we can get so puffed up in our religion and have no humility of mind, no humility of heart, no no real sacrifice. That's exactly where Judah was. The New Testament says whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. This is what Christ said. Whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. You sacrifice your life. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's just sacrificing our lives for the kingdom of God. That's the life of the believer. It's not merely looking after our own interests, but it's also looking after the interests of others. And we sacrifice. It becomes then a lifestyle for us. And that's true religion. That's actually trusting God. That's not just religious... Uh, doings or tradition or practice. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. And that's what God did. Christ gave up the glories of heaven and came to earth and sacrificed His life for us. Let me ask one more question. Then. What do we do with this? What difference does a, a virgin birth make? Why is the virgin birth essential? Why is it crucial? Why is it important? Number one, because it's a sign. It's shocking. It should be shocking. And with signs, we don't miss it. And I'm afraid that there will be people in this room here that will hear about this sign and just completely miss it and just wave it off as though it's, as though it's nothing. They will just dismiss it. And, and like those in Christ's day who says, oh, oh no, she was just, uh, she got pregnant out of wedlock and just kind of wave it off. Don't miss the point. This is an act of God. God is at work here. Number two, sinlessness. Another word that's important. The sin nature comes through the male line. This is so important. No male sperm, no sin nature. Why did Christ have to become, why did he have to be born by a virgin? No male sperm, no sin nature. He didn't have the sin nature. Mary was Christ entered into an unfertilized egg he grew inside Mary he was born of Mary now what does that mean we take comfort in that folks because he was man and God he could take on our sins he wasn't having to pay for his own sins he was paying for our sins folks that's a glorious thought next we see fulfillment you see, fulfillment, the, the Abrahamic covenant. Why, why was the virgin birth important? Uh, 
He, he had to become man to fulfill all that, that God had promised in the New Testament. Because God is a promise-keeping God. And we trust Him. We trust this promise-keeping God. It's an exercise of faith. That's something that we do every day. As Christians, we exercise faith. We trust God. Therefore, we can sacrifice. Number next is, is crucial. It's a crucial point of theology. 100% God, 100% man. Let me point this out. This verse was read to us in Sunday school, but I think it's important for me to read this. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, just, just to remind you, if you do not hold to this virgin birth, you're, you're putting yourself into a dangerous category. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do you... You have to test that. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This virgin birth is from God. He came in the flesh. That's from, that's from God. This is a crucial, crucial importance. We, we have to avoid, avoid uh, false doctrine here. And then number, the last one here, we'll close it with this. It's just obedience. Is it obedience? The virgin birth was just an act of obedience from Christ, from the Father to, of Christ. Christ just voluntarily came to redeem man at a request of the Father. And He came down when He came down. And I, I love this. We, we see this little quote in Scripture. He, he says, I came only to do the will of my Father. Completely dependent. On his father. And folks, that's the example for us. Sacrifice. You know what? It's so much easier to just just be driven by our own flesh. To do whatever we want to do. Not sacrifice at all. And there's no humility in that. We have a different attitude with Christ. A different attitude even with God to sacrifice his own son. We're called to live a life of sacrifice. Now, the heart needs to be comforted. And this is the time of the year to comfort our hearts. But we comfort our hearts by this one fact of a virgin birth of Christ. It's a wonderful teaching. It's an amazing teaching. God is at work. Christ was perfect. He was sinless. It was a fulfillment of, of uh, God's promise that He is a promise-keeping God. It was crucial that He come in the flesh so that He can die for us and then just set a, a wonderful example of obedience to His Heavenly Father. Folks, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, may we be those who exercise faith in You. Who exercise, may we not be caught up in religiosity, tradition of man, even, even just the... the Christianity that we see today is it seems to be so phony because no one's willing to, to really sacrifice. No one has the, the a humble attitude that we see from God our Father, from Christ. Lord, may we have those kinds of attitudes. May we be willing to sacrifice be for your kingdom. Lord, may we be obedient 
to you. Live a life of faith and dependence upon you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.